Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my chat with Kyle Beachy on The Most Fun Thing. First, I'd like to encourage you to check out our website at booksonpod.com. You can sort through past shows by episode number, book title, author's last name, or sort by category. For instance, select the biographies and memoirs or music category for episode number 62 with Bad Religion frontman Greg Graffin on Do What You Want. Hey, this is Greg Graffin from Bad Religion. I'd like you to listen to Books on Pod podcast with Trey. We just had a great talk about Bad Religion's new book that's out there. Do what you want. The story of Bad Religion. Hello, readers. Kyle Beachy is a lifelong skateboarder, award-winning writer, co-host of the skateboarding podcast Vent City, and a creative writing professor at Roosevelt University in Chicago. He's also a published author whose newest book is titled The Most Fun Thing, Dispatches from a Skateboard Life. Kyle, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Oh, man, I'm doing great. I'm great. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. This book starts out at the Art Institute of Chicago, specifically with you sitting on a bench. Why is this representative of you and your life? Yeah. Before I say anything, I should say that that bench is gone now, which is kind of heartbreaking to me. They actually they they took out my favorite place to sit at the museum and they turned it into another um, exhibition space. Mm. Um so I, I suppose it's indicative of my life in that I have spent what feels to me a great um, portion of my life staring at nothing or <laughs> what um, people who are n- not as quite uh, in love with the activity of skateboarding as I am might consider nothing or might consider less than nothing, might consider um, a kind of garbage non-space. Um, and so spending a lot of time moving through those spaces leads to one to kind of leads one to kind of consider um, what it is about those spaces that have appeal to us. And so, yeah, I would sit on this bench underneath the stairway in the modern wing of the Art Institute, and I would just be extremely happy there. It felt like um, it felt as if I was doing something else than sitting in a museum. Considering the title of this book is the most fun thing, I really enjoyed your exploration of the evolution of the word fun. How has its definition evolved over time, and how does that connect with the progress of skateboarding? So fun is one of these words that, um, well, its its original use use was um, a, a noun, right? It was it was a it was a thing done. Um, so it was like a cheat, um, and it kind of slowly became the person who does that cheating, the person who um, is is kind of the cause of of the fun itself. Um, but over time, you know, it becomes this sort of um, kind of catch-all word that roughly more or less equates with the word good. Um, And so we say it to mean things like, oh, how was the concert last night? Oh, it was fun. (laughs) Um, And by which we mean it it was good, but we can use it for all sorts of things, right? Like how will... How was how was dinner? How was it seeing your sister? Um, how was the last 20 years of your life? Right. I mean, this all of these kind of questions, the fact that all of these questions can have the same one word answer means that we're probably not using that word in a very specific way. Um, and so, you know, a lot of what this book is aiming to do is is kind of pin down some of these squirrely, slippery terms that we just have sort of stopped thinking about. 
you know, um, a, a good deal of this book is about the obvious, about things that we take for granted. Um, like, for instance, the space under a stairway at the Art Institute. Um, and so one of the sort of paths of trying to reinvigorate the obvious, try to look again at the obvious, um, one of those paths kind of led me to some key terms. Um, and now, you know, since then, since fun has become this kind of catch-all, there's also a way that um, we've become kind of suspicious of it, right? That if, if we're having too much fun, um, then maybe we're behaving out of hand. If we're having too much fun, then perhaps we're um, engaging in a dereliction of other things that we should be doing. Um, and so the, the hope would be that by re-examining the term itself fun, we might have access to perhaps changing our relationship to the activities that create it. And one of those activities for you is skateboarding. When did you first get into skateboarding? How long have you been doing it now? And just how has the sport slash activity changed in this time that you've uh, been competing? Um, I, I appreciate you uh, tempering sport with activity there. That's, you know, one of one of the kind of main thrusts of this book um, or, or the main questions of this book is, you know, A, is skateboarding a sport? And B, if it is becoming more and more athleticized, is there potentially a risk in that in that velocity and that trajectory toward um, the sportification of skateboarding? Um, I started skateboarding as an eight-year-old boy in suburban St. Louis. Um, like a lot of the people I was around, it wasn't something I, ever, I, I ever considered would take over my life. Um, I was an active kid. I played uh, you know, I played tennis pretty, pretty competitively. Um, I played baseball and continued to through high school and into, in fact, the first week of college tryouts before I decided, no, 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 this isn't for me. Um, so skateboarding hasn't been for my entire life, this sort of special holy thing. It was, um, you know, it was one activity among other activities that I pursued, um, in a physical manner, right? I mean, I've been a physical person throughout my life. Um, skateboarding didn't become quite as important as it is now to me until uh, I was able to kind of reflect on it a little bit and look back. And I don't know that it happened one day, but there was definitely a certain point when I realized, I realized like, oh, geez, man, I've been doing this for a very long time. Um, and that was partially a kind of um, self-reflective temporal issue. Like, my God, how many hours have I put into this and why? It was partially a financial question. Like, my God, how many hundreds of thousands <laughs> of dollars have I spent on this thing and why? Um, and then, you know, it started becoming sort of an existential question, which, which, you know, was more or less like, what even is this thing? Like, what is it that I'm pursuing uh, with this money and with this time and with these kind of pound of flesh that I'm paying every time I go out there and come back home bloody. Um, every time I'm teaching a class and I look down and a scab has been knocked off on the lectern and is bleeding down my elbow. Like, what am I getting out of this? If I'm, if there's so much that I'm paying so much that I'm giving to this thing, a, what is it? And B, what, what am I getting back? And can I even expect to get anything back? So what are you getting back? <laughs> uh, um, I, I, well, uh, a lot. I, I mean, it, it turns out that what skateboarding has done for me is essentially shape um, the way that I understand myself in relationship to the world around me, right? It, it has more or less served as the kind of foundational text, if we can call it a text, um, for me living my life. Uh, there's, a, there's an old trope, and it's, 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 
it's at least a trope within the skateboarding community. And it's often spoken of about people like Spike Jones, the film director who came out of skateboarding um, to say that, you know, skateboarders see the world differently, right? Like that's, that's the sort of cliche of it. And people who are engaged in skateboarding conversations um, have been known to kind of roll their eyes at that. Like, Oh yeah, here we go again. Um, the problem, of course, with that statement is not that it's a cliche. Um, the problem with most cliches is not that they're cliches. It's that they they essentially foreclose on any further discussion. Right. Um, and so when we say like, oh, yeah, you know, skaters like Spike Jones see the world differently. What we don't then do is go on to do a close reading of Spike Jones's films and say, OK, well, where do we see skateboarding in where the wild things are? Where do we see skateboarding um, in any of his films, we, we don't do that. We just sort of toss out the cliche, roll our eyes, and then move on with whatever it is we're doing. Um, and, and again, you know, my, my sort of sense about this book is that it, it is in large part an attempt to kind of push past that cliche and ask what you just asked. Now, whether I can answer what you just asked, what has it given me in any sort of sub 300 page way is a, is a much bigger <laughs> challenge. So I'm going to maybe defer and hope that the cumulative, the, the, accumulation of this conversation gives some sort of answer to that question. Well, that's interesting what you're saying about skaters seeing the world in a different way. I'm reading Susan Berry's new book right now mm -hmm. that is all about people who gain vision either for the first time in their lives or for the first time in a long time and how visually they see things very differently. They don't see mm -hmm. objects as much as they see breaks and lines and contours and colors and things like that. So is it as simple as suggesting that skateboarders, when you're walking down the street, you see something that you could utilize in your skateboarding world when, when you're on those four wheels versus when you're just walking around on a sidewalk? Yeah. So Use, use is part of it, right? I mean, what exists for, let's just for the sake of um, politeness and um, use an unvalued and um, maybe neutral term here, I'll call them civilians, people who are not skaters, we'll speak of them as civilians. So when a civilian walks down, say, um, is walking through the Chicago Loop and comes upon um, what used to be First National Bank, but is now Chase Park Plaza, um, what they will see there is um, some steps that descend into a kind of um, classical sort of downtown urban American plaza with some benches and some granite walls. And the floor is granite, the benches are granite, the walls themselves are granite. What a skateboarder will notice um, immediately is that, well, those benches are covered in wax on the edge. And that means someone has been skating there. So there's a kind mm. of anthropology there. It's, it's saying like, oh, yeah, my kind have been here before me and they have found some use in this bench. I should go and check it out. The second thing we'll notice is that the granite walls are not actually vertical, that there's actually a kind of um, barely sub-vertical incline to them, which makes them exceptionally um, promising for doing tricks that we, we call kind of generally wall rides. And so we can kind of slam our board up onto them and roll, roll along them for a bit and then come back down to the ground, which ground incidentally is also made out of granite, which is one of, along with marble, one of the, the best possible things to have under your wheels. And now we're talking about a tactile thing. And actually what I see from the top of the stairs is my God, that ground probably would feel incredible under my feet beneath the wheels of my board as I am pushing around it. I'm noticing the size of the granite squares 
um, and what that means for cracks and how those cracks are in the way and whether those cracks are gaping and dangerous or whether those cracks are going to instead provide that kind of tactile joy for me. Um, and so in that sense, like quite literally what I am seeing in this space is opportunity, is potential. It's also history. And now the third level would be if if this happens to be a place that I recognize, like I speak of in the book a couple of times, walking, coming upon for the first time in Barcadero Square in San Francisco, coming upon the old Love Park, which they just heartbrokenly uh, ripped out in Philadelphia and replaced with an absolute abomination of urban planning coming upon those places for the first time, the third thing that I saw that other people, civilians, wouldn't see is every skate video that I've watched since I was 11 years old and every trick, every standout trick that exists like a palimpsest, like truly like a, a level of textual depth at this place and my, my kind of body clenches up, my heart goes a flutter and I realize like, oh my God, I'm here. Like mm. I, I've arrived at this place that I already somehow know, right? Like it's not because I've studied Google Maps. I'm a 43 year old man. I lived most of my life so far without Google Maps, but <laughs> I somehow know this space. And what a strange paranormal phenomenon to come upon a place, not know you're going to come upon it and realize, my God, I know this. I am aware of this. I am in a space that though I've never been in here physically, I have emotionally and visually and um, somatically kind of projected myself into hundreds and thousands of times in the past. It is very strange. That's fascinating. You're making me want to skate right now, Kyle, and I'm not somebody who's been on a skateboard since I was a, a preteen. Now, so let me ask you that. Why did you stop, do you think? Uh, honestly, because I think bi biking was a little bit bigger of a deal with my friends in the neighborhood, and so the yeah. split became either skateboard by yourself or bike with your friends, and inevitably that's the route that we went and we found some parks that actually had some uh, some ramps and whatnot that you could ride over with your bike that you probably could have rid ridden over with your skateboard also. But skating sure. just wasn't as big of a deal in Carrollton, Texas, as it was uh, where you lived in St. Louis. So I, I would say that, that that probably then is like an additional sort of tier or layer of this, um, this kind of tectonic discussion we're having about what a skater sees because i mean the the other thing that a skater sort of sees when they look at the world is um the potential community that could occur there right i mean one, one of the sort of standout realities about places like embarcadero in san francisco plaza um justin herman plaza it's been called but i think they're changing the name because he was a tremendous bigot um <laughs> love park in philadelphia and and chase park plaza down in the chicago loop is that um they also provide this this sort of community gathering space right i mean it's a place um to essentially fellowship together, not to get too early into the sort of language of the sacred here. Um, but these spaces do offer this sort of social engagement with other like-minded folks. And of course, civilians who are moving their own way through the space, like one's relationship to a community of skateboarders is also kind of tied into that spatial place. Um, so, you know, like you're not alone in, you know, most people quit skateboarding. That's the thing. Most people stop. Um, the only thing about me is that I just never stopped. Mm -hmm. And so eventually I had no choice to kind of confront it and say like, why didn't I stop? What the hell is going on here? 
Well, it's funny. In, in hindsight, I would have been better off going off on my own because even though I have my friends, you and I are the same age. I'm 43 as well. Even though I have my friends that I love hanging out with, I love my alone time also. And <laughs> something that maybe drives my wife and kids a little bit crazy at times, but I need that alone time in order to recharge, to be valuable for those around me. And so to do it all over again, I probably would have chosen the skateboarding route because the people that I was so desperate to hang out with, we had just moved to this neighborhood. They turned out not to be friends in the long term. I mean, they're people that I interacted with throughout the next five to 10 years or whatever, but they're people I have yeah. no idea what they're up to now. So yeah. it's just interesting the, the choices that we make at ages where we don't know any better for whatever reasoning that turns out to be totally false in the long term. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess the other thing that uh, you're totally right. And I agree with that, right? Like that these sort of formative decisions end up, I mean, this is why we tell stories all the time about teens, right? It's because this, this is the moment when decisions are made that have the sort of lasting existential outcomes. The other thing you said that I think is really interesting is the, the fact that for all I'm speaking of this as a communal sort of, um, a community skateboarding as a kind of social activity. Uh, you know, the, the fact is, is that skating alone is a big part of my life right now. Right. I mean, when, when I need a thing that is not writing, that is not walking a dog, that is not, um, being a good husband, that is not being a college professor. What I have is this sort of fifth thing, which is the, the guy who stands on the board and pushes around the local streets with no, goal right aimless is like quite literally what it is um it's not about exercise exactly because it's not like i'm jogging it's not like i'm counting the calories i'm burning there is this sort of solo respite that i find in it and i think i again you know here <laughs> add that on the list of <laughs> why skateboarding is interesting yep so skateboarding has obviously gained a ton in popularity over the last 20 to 30 years in large part because of the x games and its inclusion in the olympics but is skateboarding inherently an activity that is meant to be won or lost i think the skateboarding has a very nuanced um, and ultimately kind of beautiful balance of competition and support. Um, a thing happened in the Olympics recently where uh, there was a moment in the, it was in the women's park final where the final, the, the sort of final athlete um, went through her run um, and you can see it. And I was, I was talking with another skater about this. You can see um, if you're a skater, you can see how hard she was trying to land the last trick, right? I mean, she's got her 45 second run. She's done great for the 40 seconds of it, but her last trick, you can see that she's just not quite over the board when she comes back in after being in the air for a time. Um, and she struggles so hard. You can see her kind of torquing her body and wanting it so badly. Um, but she failed and she ended up on the ground um, knowing that this she had just lost with not landing that trick. She had lost her shot at the gold and, you know, very quickly was in a kind of tears. Um, but just as quickly as she was down and the tears began, she was immediately swarmed by two or three other athletes who were there for her immediately. Um, that sort of activity is absolutely native and endemic to this sort of balance of competition and support that I think skateboarding um, kind of contains, embodies, or um, supports, right? It, it, this, it's a sort of catalyst for these kind of behaviors. What the Olympics did immediately was say, oh, look at this good sportsmanship, which for someone like me just starts raising all sorts of red flags and alarms start blaring in my head where I say, wait a minute, 
that's not sportsmanship. It's only sportsmanship because we're here talking about athletics. That exact thing would have happened without the framework of athletics. That is exactly what those skaters would have done for each other if there were no cameras, if there was no competition, if they were just in a backyard and one of them had gone down like that. And so for me, my kind of beef with attaching the word sportsmanship to that is that in fact, what you do when you call it sportsmanship is you end up sort of reducing what to me is a far more interesting behavioral practice that is native to skateboarding. And so when we say, is skateboarding a sport? My answer is, well, it certainly can be. It can be a sport very, very easily, right? It, it, it fits neatly into these kind of frameworks of competition. My concern with that, and, and I you know, I need to be careful to not be too Cassandra-ish here, but my concern with that is that sport becomes the kind of prevailing narrative of what skateboarding is, when in fact it's not only that. It's not even close to only that. And so I, I do get a little uh, edgy when the competition conversation comes up because it's like, yes, it can be that, um, but it can also be a tool for Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. It can be uh, an inspirational tool for the evangelical wing of the church. It can be any of these things. Um, because I think skateboarding, because it is fundamentally meaningless, has this sort of vulnerability about it. And so one of the things you probably felt from the book a little bit is a kind of protectiveness. There are times when I'm kind of concerned that this vulnerability is going to lead to it being heralded by some, let's just pull out of a hat here, multinational global licensing operation that moves from nation to nation, destroying every city in its path, um, who has the budget and the media exposure to claim a thing and then tell anyone who's new to it, here's what it is, here's what skateboarding is. Um, and so, yes, it's a competition, but it's also very much not. Are you concerned that Nike's going to get its hooks too into skateboarding over time or has it already? No, I think Nike got its hooks in fairly effectively. I think okay. the way that Nike got into the sport is a real sort of object lesson in um, the relationship between um, corporate culture and counterculture. I think mm. they did an exceptional job of penetrating a market that rebuffed them at least once, right? I mean, Nike tried to make inroads in the aughts and just got laughed out of skateboarding. They tried again later in the aughts towards 2009, 10, 11, um, and, and now, 10 years after that, they feel as native to skateboarding as any of the sort of skater-owned brands that we see. What I don't worry about with Nike, though, is Nike trying to tell people what skateboarding is. I mean, I think Nike, like a lot of other corporations, see in skateboarding a way to access a consumer group, right? I mean, that's it. Um, and a way to kind of charge up their own kind of bland brand, right? I mean, Nike is so big, it's hard to say what Nike really is in terms of its brand identity. But if they can kind of usurp a little bit of skateboarding's, um, you know, street cachet, it's sort of rugged mythology, it's sort of urban meets motorcyclist kind of bevy of kinds, it might be able to then present itself as being sort of part of what skateboarding is and, and inform its own brand. And I think they've done that exceptionally well. What they haven't done is tell skaters what skateboarding is. They tried it once. They had one sort of ad campaign that was called Skate Every Damn Day. And it was a hashtag and it was their sort of push into, come on, y'all, that's every day. 
And the problem was, is that a lot of skaters don't want to skate every day. I mean, I certainly can't skate every day. And I think that sort of intensity, that sort of normative voice was really bad for the brand. I think it was a, it was a big mistake on Nike's part. So Nike has sort of stopped trying to tell skaters what skateboarding is. The Olympics, on the other hand, is, is bringing with it perhaps the most like profound narrative engine that we have in any sort of athletics, right? Mm. I mean, it is the biggest storytelling enterprise that you will see in any sports. It's not just one shining moment. It's every athlete has an origin and here's why that origin matters. And this finally is their end point. They have made it to the Olympics. Um, and that scares me. I mean, really good storytelling sometimes scares me. Hmm. But you're a good storyteller, though. I don't know that that's true. I uh, think that- I, I've, I've read this book, um, and I know that you have another very popular novel that won awards, too. I think you're an okay storyteller, Kyle. I, I appreciate that. What, what I will say is that one of the key things about this book was born out of a frustration with trying to find a narrative form for a second novel that I felt would be in some way um, aligned with or would would honor the sort of aimlessness of skateboarding. And so what I what what is behind this hopefully successful work of nonfiction about skateboarding is a failed novel. Um, so and, and yes, I mean, I, I do. I do teach narrative at the undergraduate and graduate <laughs> level. I am familiar with the way that narrative works, um, but I, I don't know that I am a natural storyteller. I mean, huh. you've been around natural storytellers. You, you know, you know what it's like to be around someone who has the sort of internal rhythms of a story and knows when to pause the story to give you a little information, knows how to build up the suspense of it, knows when to yoke in something they might have mentioned as a throw line earlier like th- those people are astounding and i am not one of those if anything i'm a i'm a technician i understand narrative and i can fiddle with it okay well uh well some people may equate nike with skateboarding i'd like to think that a lot of skaters and the general public probably think first of vans when they think about skateboarding and perhaps a shoe that's being worn so which came first and maybe this is a chicken and egg question skaters love of vans vans love of skateboarders and why is each important to the other? So, you know, the, the thing that Vans figured out very early was that um, a, a real simple soul um, that wasn't thick didn't um, sever the connection between a skateboarder's foot and their board. Um, Vans figured out very early the technology. I mean, they had the technology to do that. The You know, the Vans waffle sole, the vulcanized sole, this very soft um, you know, trademarked kind of Vans footwear sole is just perfect for skateboarding. I mean, it's wonderful for skateboarding. Um, Vans encountered some problems later on when skateboarders started really jumping off of big things and realized like, oh, wait, this this shoe isn't sufficient. And, you know, there's probably an unwritten essay out there about the sort of evolution of skaters jumping down things and how that overlaps with their desire for more technical footwear, like for instance, Nike's. Um, The, the invention of, or the release of the, the simple Vans canvas waffle cut waffle sole model, um, probably is up there with the invention of the polyurethane wheel as being one of the things that really radically shifted the way that people could envision even being on a skateboard. Wow. Um, I, I, uh, I don't know. I don't, 
you could maybe ask me that question tomorrow and I'd be like, oh, that's bullshit. Like, who, <laughs> who is this guy claiming that? Um, but it does seem to me that like, yeah, I mean, the way you worded that question kind of has the answer built into it. I don't know which came first. I know that like, you know, everything with skateboarding, its origins are a kind of murky mix of technological advancement, um, you know, sort of uh, surferly leisure time um and you know boredom and innovation and and so you know the polyurethane wheel changed everything in skateboarding it opened up what skateboarders could possibly do because suddenly there was this grip on on the pavement and i think in a similar way it, had there been no vans the relationship between a skateboarder's foot and the board um would have maybe not have allowed for the kind of innovation that followed in terms of the board. I mean, we were barefoot and then we were in vans and vans are the closest thing to barefoot that you can be and still be in a shoe that's going to offer some protection to your feet. Mm. I will note that nobody yet has really attempted to sell skaters on those toe shoes, <laughs> those sort of vibram. The vibram, that, yeah. Yeah. That runners use. Um, I think it would be a disaster, but I would love to see that be a kind of brand outreach into the skateboarding market. See if that has any legs, as oh, it were. Oh, I feel like that's trying to add a fifth wheel to the skateboard or something. That's just a bad idea from the oh, get-go. It's a terrible idea. It's a terrible <laughs> idea, but it would be quite amusing to watch watch it go down. That's true. There would be some suckers who would get caught up and uh, trying to start that new trend, I guess. So part of the joy of this book is not only you sharing your own thoughts on things, but also sharing some of your favorite quotes and really expanding on those. You quote the, and I apologize if I'm getting his name wrong, the Don DeLillo football novel, End Zone, where he writes, much of the appeal of sport derives from its dependence on elegant gibberish. What a sentence. What are some of your favorite examples of this from skateboarding? Oh, you mean in terms of language? Yeah, Uh, some of the fun gibberish that connects you to one another. You know, it's... It's interesting because, you know, the the gibberish to me isn't gibberish. And so it's hard for me, you know, the great thing about Don DeLillo is that he wasn't a football player. Um, And so he he could kind of um, have that dual reflective sort of purpose, writing as a football player in that novel, but also being, you know, a guy from the Bronx um, who I guess boxed if he did anything. But in any case, um, you know, we use terms like fakie. Um, We've got when we start combining them, it starts getting a little wild, like Nolly inward heel, fakie five O um, sh- big spin out. Right. I could say that. And in my head, I'm seeing the trick go on and it, you know, what I'm marveling at is God, that would be a weird way to move your body. How would anyone do that? Um, but the terms themselves, you know, I, I recognize are um, comical. I think maybe the more interesting thing among skaters is the debates um, when we have two terms that kind of mean the same thing. And I'm, I'm trying right now to, oh yeah. Okay. So a nose grind is a grind where you, you are, you get your board, but only the front truck, the truck being the suspension that holds the wheels onto the wooden board, you get only the front truck up on a ledge and then you grind along that ledge and then you fall out. There is a way that when you're doing that, say you're just doing a backside nose grind or a front side nose grind, that means the ledge is in front of you, that you will often find yourself kind of migrating and leaning a little bit one way. So a raging and ongoing and totally senseless and stupid debate among skateboarders is, 
is it technically a different trick when you do a nose grind and you kind of migrate a little bit so you're at an angle? Is that a different trick called um, a frontside over crook? And I cannot tell you how many hours of my life I've wasted in debate about whether those two things should be different tricks. Um, so it is, it is this kind of like holy language. It does have this element of the sacred to it. We do find ourselves skaters, find ourselves totally committed to standpoints that to the outside world are absolutely senseless. Um, and so, yeah, gibberish for some is this sort of kind of sacred, holy text for those of us who, whether we like it or not, find ourselves caring about this. You say that the best and most difficult writing advice you've ever received was from a fellow skater and writer who had been told by another to write like he was going out skateboarding, not going out filming. Why does this resonate? So there's a difference um, that any and and I say this as, uh, again, a person who lived some of my life without the Internet. There is a a real possibility that anything I'm about to say would be um, would sound to someone who is grown up, who has grown up with the Internet and with Instagram and with the kind of constant reality of a phone and their uh, a phone camera and screen in their pocket would sound to them totally bonkers and cavemanish. But there is for me there is a radical difference in my approach to skateboarding depending on whether there is a camera tuned to me. And that could be a phone leaning against a light post that is filming where I am and what I'm trying. That could be my friend Tim crouched over holding his camera and following along behind me. There is a a difference in comfort. There is a difference in anxiety. There is a pressure of performance that exists when the camera is there that doesn't exist when the camera is not. Hmm. And yet, and yet it is always the case that skateboarding, and this gets back to what we were saying before about skateboarding alone, it is always the case that real skateboarding involves some level of performance, right? It's always built in. It's always land a thing and then real quickly check to see which of your friends saw you do it right like that's part of it something changes when the camera is there and it's and it's i don't even think it's it's as easy as well yeah because then that's going to be shared with someone and they're going to see it i actually think there's something kind of internal about the way that i think about what i'm doing it mm. feels tighter it feels less frankly fun it feels like work it feels like suddenly now i am producing whereas before i was aimless more Um, more pressure more pressure perhaps yeah it's pressure um i again though like i don't know exactly what kind of pressure it is Hmm. um and that that to me is the question but you know back to how that relates to writing i mean i certainly think that one of the most common sort of traps that writers fall into is starting to think about how their work is going to be received you know how is this going is this going to check all the boxes ethically right like am i am i making sure i haven't offended someone Um, Is this going to impress the people that I want to impress as a writer? Is this going to be palatable to the market that I might be able to sell it, right? Like these sorts of questions all seem to me, whatever else they are, they seem to me to be um, (laughs) kind of uh, at an atomic level, deep down inside of them, 
they run counter to what the act of creation is. Um, and so they, they end up tempering the creation. They, they shape it a little bit. And I think in the same way, that's kind of what a camera does. So it's pressure, but it's also this sort of um, something. And, and here is where like I, I run out of the language to really say what that thing is. And here's why you write an essay about it to try to kind of ask the question in an interesting way. There's been a move in the world, and we're talking about sports and non, to try and quantify everything. And it really started with sabermetrics and baseball decades ago, and that has infected every other aspect of our life now. Uh, Has this happened in skateboarding as well, where we're seeing too many numbers being thrown at something that's supposed to be this fun activity? To an extent. Um, The great thing about skateboarding is – some of, aside from competition, some of the people who are engaging in that side of um, analytics and quantitative kind of um, evaluations of skateboarding are doing it a little tongue in cheek. Um, and so there's, there's a really, there's a new magazine that does wonderful and totally unique um, journalism called, it's called four ply magazine Mm. Um, plies being, you know, a skateboard is made out of seven plies of maple that are pressed together and heat glued. So every one board is actually seven pieces of wood. Mm. Um, And so their kind of, their name is a kind of take on that. And they, it's called four ply magazine. Um, I frankly view what they do with this kind of mild amusement and then like total pearl clutching like protectiveness <laughs> like oh me oh my how this is so wrong um because you know i agree with kind of the conceit of your question that you know th- there are some key ways that baseball itself has been changed by sabermetrics right i mean the shift um the way that we pitch batters the way that we structure contracts um all of the and of course the way that we talk about baseball now is all infused with this kind of numerical like assumption that we know these things so we should apply them to the the game itself well unfortunately with this for the sake of performance it's now such a, a feast or famine nature and basketball yeah. has become this as well it's all three pointers or layups so i i guess I guess deep down I'm wondering if skating is becoming more of this feast or famine activity because the numbers are starting to infect it. I mean, certainly were you to sit back and watch the the men's street final in the Olympics that just occurred, what you would see is our entire cast of finalists skating the exact same obstacle, Hmm. a number of them trying tricks that the other ones have already done. Because they know the algorithm, they know the scoring rubric, they know what a, a, a make of that trick will yield. Now, it, 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 it is with the most profound passion that I will say to you, that is the exact opposite of what skateboarding is. Skateboarding hmm. is not eight dudes lining up at a rail all trying the same trick because they know that that is statistically the most valuable trick there. That is so effing far I, I don't know about our podcast allowment here you, but that is so freaking far see, you can you can say you can is. say you can say fuck if you need to all right great that's so fucked up it is so fucking not skateboarding and that that to me again and this gets back to that question of the stories that the olympics are going to tell like if that's the story the olympics is going to tell all of the new people it's exposing skateboarding to skateboarding is lining up at the top of a giant rail because that'll give you the most points everyone trying here's some 
you know, some gibberish for you, uh, a, a full cab back lip down the 12 stair rail and Nigel Houston trying a full cab kickflip back lip down the same rail. If that's what the Olympics is selling as here's what skateboarding is, I become very, very concerned about people who are just going to come to skateboarding anew because of that. Um, and again, that does that does stem from the fact of judging. That does stem from the drive to get gold. That does stem from the nationalist impulses of performing for your country, which we don't even need to get into is a truly un unskate thing as well to kind of break skaters down by their nation and line them up that way. <laughs> I recently yeah. spoke with Jeremy Elkin, who is the director of a new documentary on the convergence of skateboarding and hip hop in New York City in the late 80s to the late 1990s. Was something similar happening in St. Louis around this time, too? Um, there... I. I a, I envy that conversation because I would love to sit down and, and talk with him. I haven't seen the documentary yet. I haven't seen the film, but everyone I know who is a skater who has seen it and speaks of it, um, speaks of it as just a, a wonderful, wonderful document. And it's an really incredible, good. An incredible piece of history. <clears throat> um, to answer your question, mm, eh, sort of. I mean, what, okay. we saw, what I saw in St. Louis in the late 90s, the mid, I guess really, all of the 90s while I was there. I went away to Los Angeles in 1997, but you know, I would return to St. Louis. What I saw is a, a version of what we saw in New York, which was um, a convergence of skate culture and black culture, right? I mean, St. Louis um, statistically is a fairly black city. It's also a very, very segregated city. Um, and I grew up in a neighborhood that was, you know, the vast majority was white. And so for me, skateboarding was my introduction to black culture. It was the way that I that I came to, as I say in the book, misunderstand blackness, which I think is probably most white folks first step towards understanding both blackness and what it means to be white. Um, and so, yeah, there were there were a few key people who I can point to and say, were it not for Jabari Pendleton, were it not for Bobby Taylor, were it not for, um, you know, several other friends of mine um, who were young black men, I, my exposure to black culture would have been purely a thing of, you know, television and film. Um, and so in that sense, yeah, it, it was a period where both skateboarding and hip hop were kind of converging. It was also a time though, and I, I learned this in having a long conversation with Jabari, where um, for black men like him, the, there was an incredible amount of ridicule and pressure that they felt from within their neighborhoods and their communities for doing this kind of sellout white boy activity. Um, so it's charged. And you know, the reason I'm so excited for that documentary is because I think everyone in skateboarding knows that during the 90s, there was, there was a relationship between these two cultures of hip hop culture and all that that stands for and skate culture and all that that stands for. Um, and, and each of our experiences of it is something that was unique and we, we can say was formative. Um, but it's also a really uncomfortable thing to talk about, right? I mean, it, it's hard to have those conversations. It's hard for skateboarding to reckon with how much uh, of its sort of culture it, it essentially took from hip hop culture. Um, and so again, I, I can't wait to see the film. It's a really good film. I think you'll enjoy it. And speaking of convergence, I think one of the reasons why this book resume, resonates with me is because 
it is you converging your different worlds, your skateboarding world with your riding world, with your marriage world, all those coming together in fascinating ways. And at times you're not even exploring skateboarding. You talk about uh, going through and uh, really examining David Foster Wallace's life and his works and his last work, which of course was posthumous after he had committed suicide. You actually had the pleasure of meeting David Foster Wallace a couple of different times. I'm not going to have you tell that, uh, tell the first story here. It's amusing and people just need to check this book out to uh, to find that one out. Uh, my question for you, though, as somebody who is a writer, who has obviously been influenced by our generation's, if not the greatest, one of the greatest writers, what is the most important writing lesson that you've taken away from David Foster Wallace? Um, and that That's a great question. Speaking, though, of dangerous questions, you know, to to speak of Wallace now is sort of verboten, right? I mean, there's the, we're we're in this place where speaking of shorthands for a, sort, a certain kind of um, person. It's like admitting that it takes a couple of uh, times through to, to try and start to comprehend infinite jest. If you say that, you're you're a terrible reader and an awful human being. Yeah, but, you know, also don't have that book on your shelf if you want to. Um, you know, unless you want to be a bro. Um, so here, yeah. here's what I think uh, about. So I've taught infinite jest. I mean, one of the reasons why I, I think this this kind of um, the sort of popular um, memes and jokes about David Wallace being a sort of shorthand for a certain kind of misogynist person and young um, self-aggrandizing white boy is that you know the fact is is that this is a book that I've taught um, to students uh, across the sort of um, every sort of gradient and spectrum that we can think of in terms of students. And, and, you know, I, I, I think as a work of fiction, it is a stupendously ambitious at times, you know, a, a world historically successful and at other times just bumblingly bad work of fiction. Yeah. I think the thing that I learned from David Wallace, um, was one of these kind of um, anti-lessons, you know? I mean, I think what whether or not this is accurate to him in his life, and this, of course, is one of the dangers of the conversations that's gone on with Wallace after his suicide, was kind of interpreting his suicide and, and, and giving meaning to it in one way or another. So I don't want to do that. What I can say is that for me, from where I sat, he seemed to be the kind of genius who um, was in, in some key ways stopped by himself. And part of that was chemical depression. Part of that was ambition. Part of that was that that sort of pressure that one puts on oneself to think about how one will be received. Um, I think for me, Wallace has been most valuable in as a sort of representation of boy, even the most talented people can get in their own way. Um, because I am, I've, I've there, I've gone through some very dark periods where I've been just exceptionally hard on myself as a writer um, and and treating my writerly output as kind of indications of the value of my soul. Um, and that's a real dangerous place for a creative person to be because there will be failure. There will always be failure. There will always be ways that your work, when you review it, feels hideous and simple and naive and full of cliches. And my God, I can't believe anyone's reading this work that I've, that I've put out into the world. Um, and so for me, and this is where it kind of dovetails with skateboarding, I mean, what I needed in addition to being able to say like, oh, here was a guy, Dave Wallace, who was as talented as anyone with a sentence, had the vocabulary of, you know, incredibly advanced artificial intelligences, and yet couldn't 
couldn't keep doing this, wouldn't for a number of reasons continue to make work for us to read and learn from. In addition to that, I also needed this other thing, which is, my God, I fall all the time skateboarding. I am constantly failing skateboarding. Skateboarding is actually built out of failure. Skateboarding is failure. Among other things, it's, it's like it's creative failure. And how is it that I could have this thing in my life that is so beautiful and wonderful and energizing and um, fulfilling? And then this other thing, which is art making, which is writing, that I feel such pressure and such misery every time I fail. Um, and so, you know, in that sense, Wallace helped me realize my God, if I keep going this way, I'm, I'm going to be a miserable person. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't suffer from um, the chemical depression he suffered from. I don't suffer um, from the possibility of suicidal ideation, but I sure know a lot of grown up writers who are miserable. And I have long, long worried that I would turn into a miserable person. Um, and I don't want to be that. I don't want that to be my life. And skateboarding, I think, has in some, some very key ways, um, put a kind of cork on that, that flow of misery. Hollywood has had a, an incredibly difficult time turning Wallace's works into movies. The only one that I can really think of off the top of my head other than biopics is brief interviews hideous with hideous men. men. Yeah. yeah. I guess there's a similarity there with skateboarding because Hollywood hasn't had an easy time fictionalizing the world of skateboarding either. Most movies that you see on skateboarding are documentaries Having said all of that, what do you think of the 1980s classic Gleaming the Cube? Because that's really oh, the Gleaming only... Gleaming the Cube? Yeah. A.K.A. a brother's justice. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I mean, I think this will get to an answer to your question. I think one of the reasons why Wallace's films, why a, a lot of great literature um, doesn't translate well to film and the reason why skateboarding doesn't translate well to film is that it's not in a three-act structure. Like, it's not in a beginning, middle, and an end structure. It's very hard um, to take... A, a complex and nuanced and oftentimes contradictory work of art and turn it into a work of commercial cinema. It's hard. You know, uh, Krasinski did what Krasinski, is it Krasinski or Krasinski with brief interviews? John Krasinski. Um, yeah. Yeah. He did. He did. I think, you know, a kind of admiral job with that. Um, kind of maybe accidentally by finding a character for the interviewer and making it work. Yep. Um, Gleaming the Cube, I think, is an exceptional piece of puerile, juvenile cinema that, you know, happens to wear skateboarding on its sleeve. And I think, you know, for the most part, what skateboarding has been in cinema, American cinema, is this like accoutrement. It's like this, you know, this sort of wrapping paper we put around a thing and you make a character a skater or you set the the coming of age story, you know, the very kind of trite wrote coming of age story mid 90s, set it in the world of skateboarding and maybe it turns into something else. And, you know, I guess what we're kind of seeing or what I keep seeing is that these these movies fail to do any sort of justice to skateboarding, but they can use it in a way that's visually stimulating and, you know, maybe useful. Hmm. You write that skateboarding has no journalism. What do you mean? Uh, <laughs> um, skateboarding has no journalism the same way that skateboarding has no like labor justice, that there's no union, right? I mean, skaters are all paid contractors um, and they have oh, across the board, aside from a very elite few, there's no healthcare. Um, there's, there's no sort of security whatsoever. They are quite literally disposable kind of brand ambassadors. Um, 
So if that's the problem from one side, the problem from the other side is that there's no transparency in the industry because all journalism, like all of our media outlets are, are based on ad revenue for the companies they are covering. And so there are number of cases in the, in the history of skateboarding where stories perhaps could have been told more aggressively um, and pursued in more journalistic uh, manners toward the end goal of transparency, where there just was no hunger for it because you can't publish it in one of the three magazines because then the company who sponsors that skater or the company about whom the journalism is discovering things would just pull their money from the paper. And so there's not investigative journalism is what there's not. Um, there certainly are exceptional profiles of athletes. There are great interviews. Um, there's great photography and video, quite obviously. But what we don't have is a real kind of desire within skateboarding to get to the bottom of it. And so over the, you know, the last five, six decades, you have, there is no end to the number of stories that just weren't investigated. And that's, you know, dangerous. Well, and there's a pretty despicable example from your life in 2018. And uh, I guess uh, your attempts to cover something earnestly, to cover something honestly, and it being shot down in a couple of different occasions in the name of not wanting to piss sponsors off. People should definitely mm. check this book out for a lot of reasons, including that particular story. And you do write mm. about some very raw things throughout your life in this book, including the ebbs and flows of your marriage. Throughout these pages, was covering your marriage and the difficulties in your marriage at time, was that the toughest thing to write about? No, I don't okay. think so. I mean, I think I, th I think writing about my marriage, um, I, I was asked this the other day, and I think the way that I kind of answered it and, I, and that I think I believe in is that I was never inclined to tell the story of my marriage's darkness, of the disillusion of my marriage, and then the kind of reunion um, that my wife and I went through. Um, I, I've never been inclined to tell that as a story, which is to say, here is the cause, here is the effect, which then becomes the next cause, like here is the chain of events that led to the thing. Um, and I think were I to try to write the story of my marriage, um, I would have a very, very difficult time. I mean, the beauty of this book's opportunity, which is really the, the beauty of the essay as a form, um, is that there are a lot of ways to get at a thing, to kind of encircle a thing, rather than have to lay it out as a neat kind of line of causes and effects. And so marriage and my personal life and my struggles as a writer and as a teacher and um, uh, questions about um, whether I deserve any of the things I've gotten in my life, like all of those kind of swirling questions um, were, were sort of the fluid that I would be moving through at any given time. Um, and, you know, if this book has a shape, it is a shape that mimics in some ways the act of skateboarding. Mm. And again, I think that sort of model of asking questions rather than providing answers um, is one of the kind of main kind of treasures that I've taken away from skateboarding. Because I could not answer your question about where my marriage went wrong or what was, what was the cause of our arguments. I would never try to answer that question. Um, but what I would try to do and what you see me try to do in this book is ask the question in such a way that it maybe is productive. 
as far as the redemption part of that story goes, it uh, was responsible for one of my favorite lines of yours in this book, even failure can fail. I love how you love to take cliches, take uh, popular ideas, and turn them on their heads. So kudos on that one. Does skateboarding work for or against your marriage? For. Okay. Yeah, ultimately for. I mean, I think... I, th- I think I can say without hesitation that were skateboarding not in my life, um, my my life's path would be a lot darker and a, a, a lot lonelier. You covered the now famous crowboarding video where a crow is literally <laughs> using the lid of a jar to sled down a snowy roof over and over again. When you saw that video, was it surprising to you in that moment to see a non-human species having fun? And what do you think it means in the grand scheme of things, Kyle? I mean, I think the the question of fun as a kind of human, uh, you know, uh, a, a, an especially human or, um, you know, uniquely human activity is is a really um, one of these very revealing questions, right? We don't need the answer in order for that question to be revealing. Are animals having fun when they seem to be? Um, and, you know, biologists don't really know is the beauty of this, right? I mean, there are some behaviors they'll say, well, oh, what they're doing is um, they're they're learning to read each other by essentially practicing, right? It's like a form of like safe education, or this is how they mimic the sex act, or this is how um, bonds are formed. I mean, they have all of these wonderfully um, biological explanations for why you know, baboons reach through a fence and grab a cow's tail. But like at a certain point, you have to say, like, are we projecting fun onto that or is that actually fun for them? I I will have having spent the last 11 months raising a puppy um, who is one of the most maniacal creatures I've ever encountered (laughs) in person. I would say that it would take a real a, a real kind of certainty and probably lack of imagination to claim that animals are incapable of fun. I yeah. mean, it's not just us. We're certainly the only ones probably to think about it and try to um, reason our way into fun. Um, but we are, I, I cannot believe we're the only species that has fun. Agreed with that. And other animals experience fun. They have sense of humor. They can be cruel to one another as well. Meerkats are the most murderous creature on the planet. Dolphins Mm. commit sexual assault. So Mm -hmm. all of these attributes that we uh, tend to think of as only human, that's a very ignorant stance to take. And I think a lot of people are starting to figure that out now, too. In Mm. sports and in life, Kyle, there are unwritten rules. What are some unwritten rules for skateboarding, whether it's regarding non-skaters, private property, or even other skaters? All right. So the the big sort of foundational rule is like, just don't be an asshole. Like, don't be an asshole. (laughs) Right. Like, simply put. Um, because every session, every time there are more than three skaters gathered at a place, it requires this kind of, um, again, unspoken sort of design principle for how they're going to move. If someone is trying a trick on an obstacle, what you don't do is go and try that exact same trick that they are doing just to show them you can do it. If you are going to do that, you had better be really good friends with them. There had better be a level of irony in play. Um, Otherwise, you're being an asshole, like you are one-upping this person. Um, In terms of 
you know, the relationship between skaters and like security guards or the owners of private property, I'd say that those, that's a good example of the sort of unwritten rules of skateboarding being kind of in flux, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there is, there is a kind of movement of class solidarity that will say like, my God, this is a minimum wage worker. You are literally out here making their labor a thousand times more difficult and annoying than it would be. And you're potentially putting them in danger, right? I mean, there, there have been some pretty notable interactions between skaters and security guards that have led to severe injury and in some terrible cases, loss of life. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there is, there is, it's a, it's an environment where there are unwritten rules, you know, like baseball, like the sort of, you know, the unwritten tit for tat of hit hits bat hit batsmen. Um, skateboarding has a lot of those, but I think probably more interesting is the fact that a lot of those are changing and that they can change. Um, and so, you know, I don't want to, I don't really want to harbor too much, uh, or I don't want to labor too much on the unwritten rules. Cause I think a lot of them need to remain in flux. I think that's sort of one of the, the, the secret codes for the skateboarders that um, we kind of self-govern, right? I mean, in a, in, in, in a perfect situation, skateboarding will kind of take care of itself. A little bit and like, ba- in, a little bit like baseball in that regard, then I guess a little bit. Yeah. Except we don't have a commissioner doling out penalties or yeah. we don't have a labor union, you know, opposing those penalties just, you know, ad nauseum, despite knowing very well what had happened. Right. So we, we lack that sort of performance, but yeah, I mean, in a certain sense, you would hope that skateboarding can remain enough of a culture that it can kind of take care of itself without the international Olympic committee or Nike or whatever next kind of organization gets involved, trying to tell it what the best way forward is. Father time remains undefeated. Of course, that is especially the case in sports where everybody reaches a certain threshold where they can no longer compete. What do you think will happen to you when you can no longer skateboard? And how close do you think you are to that point? I, th- I think I will find a way to skateboard in some capacity. Hmm. I am certainly less able now than I ever have been to jump up or off of things. Um, I imagine retiring to a ranch in New Mexico and building a very gentle, low impact, low altitude sort of skate spot somewhere on my property where I can roll around. I can have the sensation of the the ground passing under the wheels. And even without ollieing, even without necessarily doing the basic kick turn to, to adjust my direction, I can stand on the thing. And I think I will probably be standing on the thing until I cannot stand anymore. Um, and, and then I don't, I don't know. I mean, hopefully, hopefully one comes to terms with the loss before the loss has overtaken one. Um, what I will say is that I am more grateful at age 43 for every single moment that I am physically able to be on a skateboard and perform at all than I have ever been. And I think that gratitude is the sort of overwhelming um, dominating experience that I feel towards skateboarding. Now I am just so grateful that I, that I still do it. Is there a reluctance to do certain things that you just used to do without thinking because you know, it hurts that much more at 43. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, there are, there are 
every time I go out, there's a moment where I will roll up to a thing and think, nope, absolutely not. <laughs> not worth it. Not worth it at all. Um, because the pains, like, I mean, I have a thing in my left wrist right now. When did this happen? I have no idea. Mm. I have no concept. There was no like traumatic fall that occurred at some point in the, the multiple times that I ended up on the ground. I must have landed on my wrist in a way sometime in the last like four months because these things just linger forever. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm very self-present preservationist these days, which, you know, leads to leads to all sorts of complications. Understandable. Kyle Beachy is a lifelong skateboarder, award-winning writer, co-host of the skateboarding podcast, Vent City, and a professor at Roosevelt University in Chicago. His new book is titled The Most Fun Thing, Dispatches from a Skateboarding Life. Kyle, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for pouring your heart and soul into this book. It was an excellent read. Thank you. I'm, I'm grateful. Thank you. Join me next time when I speak with Jeff Mayno on Until Proven Safe, the history and future of quarantine. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for hanging out. You can listen, learn, and follow for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.